Hi, everyone, and thanks for being here for another episode of the Bottom Up Revolution podcast. I'm Rachel, Program Director at Strong Towns. Shelley Dennison is a Strong Towns advocate and city planner in Sandy, Oregon, a town that's going through some challenges that should be very familiar to you. Concerns about traffic and congestion, questions about what it means to invite more housing into your city. And as a city planner, Dennison navigates these issues with a thoughtful and open mind. She's been invested in clarifying, for instance, what allowing missing middle housing would actually mean for her community, more housing options, and not developers bulldozing your neighborhood, as some residents might fear. Dennison sees city planning as fundamentally about relationship with residents, and she's dedicated to what she calls communicative planning that genuinely takes into account the needs and concerns of those who live in her town. In this interview, you'll hear her nuanced take on the Yimby NIMBY debate, her experience hosting a housing-related podcast, and her dedication to fighting cynicism in the planning field. I hope you enjoy this interview. Shelly Dennison, thank you for joining me for this episode of the Bottom Up Revolution podcast. It's great to have you on the show. Thank you. I'm so excited for this. Um, can you start by telling us a little bit about yourself and your community where you live? Yeah, so I'm a planner for Sandy, Oregon. Sandy is a kind of a smallish city. Uh, it's a population of about 12,000 as of the last census, uh, but it's also one of the um, quickest growing cities in Oregon. It's right at the base of Mount Hood. Um, it's gorgeous, amazing outdoor recreation culture. I adore Sandy. I love Sandy. Um, it's an amazing, perfect small town. As far as I go, um, I actually did my undergrad in philosophy, oh, and then I have cool. master's degrees. Yeah, master's degrees in city planning and public administration. I got those from Ohio State, and then decided that I wanted to live in the Pacific Northwest. So that's how I ended up out in Oregon. And what led you to pursue planning? Um, I watched a lot of Parks and Rec. <laughs> so it's kind of a funny story. I joke that planning found me because in my last semester of my undergrad studying philosophy, I um, happened upon a library book about car-free cities and thought it was the most interesting thing I had ever seen and got really interested in that concept of, you know, these assumptions we make about built environments and how we think they're supposed to be and realizing that we can reimagine other ways that our built environments can be and sort of discovered, oh, I can study this in grad school. I can be a city planner. That's a career path that I can take. So that's actually how I got really interested in, in planning. Um, and then as far as working for city government, you know, I've always been really interested in the role of local government in our everyday lives and the kind of impact, both positive and negative, that local government can have. Um, and so I'm really personally passionate about having the kind of role where I could potentially make a positive impact on the everyday lives of um, people in the city that I work for. So that's how I ended up in deciding that I wanted to do local government work. So in your time in local government so far, what are some of the biggest challenges that um, your community, Sandy, has been facing? And how are you in your role as a planner working to address those? I would say the two biggest obstacles, the two biggest challenges that Sandy is facing right now are growth management and traffic. 
which I think a lot of cities would say exactly the same thing. I'll talk a little bit about the growth management. So I mentioned earlier that Sandy is one of the quickest growing cities in Oregon. Um, We have just um, enormous growth in residential development. We're always reviewing, you know, subdivision applications for these giant subdivisions. And, um, you know, a lot of people who have lived in Sandy for a few decades are understandably not, you know, that happy about that and are pretty vocal. We have a pretty vocal, um, you know, group of residents who who don't want to see Sandy grow necessarily um, or don't want to see it grow in the way that that kind of this trajectory is going, you know, figuring out a way to communicate with them and figure out a way to get more residents involved in the process and figure out how we can meet these interests, these seemingly competing interests of people want to move to Sandy, but people who already live in Sandy don't want people to move to Sandy. So that's definitely a big challenge. And then I mentioned also traffic. So there's actually a, um, a state highway that runs right through the middle of our downtown. And um, anybody who's wanting to get up to Mount Hood drives on that highway. And so it's frequently very congested, very at maximum capacity, pretty much all the time. And then we get a lot of semis, a lot of big trucks coming down that road. So it's it serves a lot of local traffic purposes for that downtown area. Um, it's the main arterial through town. So a lot of local traffic and a lot of um, through traffic. That's a big issue as well, is what are we going to do about this state highway running right through the middle of downtown? And do you know what you are going to do about it or what you hope we to actually, do? We actually just uh, finished with a consulting team this uh feasibility study to build a bypass around town for all that through traffic. It's looking like that's not going to be particularly feasible. Um, uh, It's going to cost a lot of money. You know, it's one of those things where it's kind of a wicked problem because, you know, this, this highway serves so many purposes as, you know, an arterial. And, you know, there was another study we did a number of years ago where we you know, took pictures of license plates coming into town and then pictures of license plates leaving town. And we saw how much time people stopped and, and stayed in Sandy to determine if they were, you know, stopping at local businesses and found that uh, the majority of people who come into Sandy stop somewhere in Sandy and spend money. And so there's this question of what would a bypass do to that local economy? You know, a lot of my friends who live, you know, in Portland and drive through Sandy to get up to the mountain will always say, you know, oh, yeah, I stop at Joe's Donuts or I stop at the the food cart pod. Right. So that's kind of part of the experience of going up to the mountain is, you know, stopping in Sandy um, and getting food to eat. We want to be able to serve the local traffic, but it turns out that all of this through traffic also um, is is good for our local businesses. But again, it's, you know, it's this wicked problem because the the solution is so complex that it's it's difficult to kind of wrap our heads around what a good solution would look like. Yeah, I know there are people in other communities probably listening to this who have encountered that same issue in their own cities. And yeah, you're right to point out that there's not an easy solution. Mm-hmm. 
I noticed a couple months ago that you were active in the Strong Towns Facebook group and you mentioned that you've been going through this process um, around, I believe it's called Oregon House Bill 2001. Can you start by just describing that mandate for people that aren't familiar? And then I want to hear more about what you're doing with that. Sure. So the soundbite that proponents of House Bill 2001 would use is that it's a bill that re-legalizes middle housing. So basically what it does is uh, based on a city's population size, it requires that the city allow certain types of middle housing as an outright permitted land use in areas zoned for single family residential. So what that means in Sandy is that for all of our land that's zoned as single family residential, um, not only are we required to allow obviously single family residential homes, but we also need to allow duplexes. So a developer can come in and say, hey, you know, I'm going to buy this, this land that's zoned single family residential and I want to build duplexes. And we're required to say, okay, sounds great. Larger cities with bigger populations, that increases to not only duplexes, but triplexes and cottage clusters and quadplexes. Um, so it's, it's allowing uh, middle housing and housing choice within um, exclusively zoned single family residential areas. So what was their response in your city to this issue or this this bill being proposed? Um, and how have you been navigating conversations with your your fellow residents and people, decision makers in your community around this? Yeah, so um, I would say most residents, and this is the case for a lot of planning topics, I think. Most residents just don't really have the knowledge or the, you know, the like there's other things that they care about, right? And, you know, might not have a lot of time or resources or, you know, background information to be able to dig into these issues. There was quite a bit of misinformation and misunderstanding of what House Bill 2001 does. So the way the news reports it, you know, is, oh, you know, Oregon bans single family zoning. And how people sometimes interpret that is, oh, we can't build single family homes anymore. And, you know, during a planning commission meeting, we we got a public comment saying, you know, well, if we go over a certain population size, then we can only build apartments. And so there was kind of this mis- misunderstanding of what, um, what that meant. And then um, on the side of city council, and I know a lot of other planners in similarly sized cities to Sandy have experienced this. Um, our city councils um, feel um, like it's a it's a loss of local control, uh, which I believe there is an argument to be made for that, you know, uh, recognizing the importance of local context and local planning in the process of growth management and land use. Um, and so our city council actually ended up hiring um, a third-party lobbying firm to see what they could do to lobby against similar legislation to House Bill 2001, because they're really feeling this loss of local control. And so I find myself in this interesting position of, I consider myself a housing advocate, right? I consider myself an advocate for housing options and affordable housing and accessible housing. And so that means more middle housing options, right? Um, That means increasing density. That means more multifamily options. 
So on one hand, I appreciate House Bill 2001 for that, for increasing you know, the capacity for more housing options. Um, I also recognize that maybe this needed to happen at the state level. You know, maybe, you know, we, we saw for decades, Oregon's been in a massive housing crisis, a housing shortage, and cities didn't really step up to, to try to resolve that at, at the city level. And so maybe it needed to come from the state down. At the same time, I, I can really empathize with um, the feelings of our city councilors and you know other city councilors around the state, other community leaders around the state, and feeling like, wait a second, why is why is Oregon, why is the state deciding what's in the best interest of of our city? Um, you know, we should have the say, we should have the control um, to do this. <laughs> a line that often gets repeated in our city council meetings um, when it comes to state, you know, top-down legislation is, uh, you know, oh, this is a Portland solution to a Portland problem. And so I find myself in the position of, you know, how can I communicate to them? Like, no, this isn't just a Portland problem. This is an everywhere problem, you know? And um, here, here are the ways that we can implement this in, in a way that makes sense in our local context. And so that's kind of what I'm trying to figure out now is how do I communicate that to, to our city councilors? And what is your role as, you know, a government staff person, um, not an elected official, but also not, you know, just a concerned citizen resident, like, how do you navigate your role in this? And like, how opinionated are you allowed to be in these conversations? Man, that is such a good question. And I ask myself that question all the time. I have this conversation with my boss pretty frequently of sometimes I feel like I'm expected to be a technocrat, you know, to compile all of these technical documents and write a staff report and not give my professional opinion, not give any kind of recommendation based on my expertise, you know, because that would be too, especially on issues where I disagree with city council, you know, that there, that, that, uh, you know, sometimes I feel like I'm, I, there's, there's no room for me to give an opinion based on my, you know, professional knowledge. Um, other times I feel like there is that room, you know, where I am trusted as an expert in planning and in land use. And I'm still trying to figure out, you know, where, where that line is, you know, that's, um, yeah, something, something that I'm still trying to figure out in my position is, is what is my role, you know, um, where, where can I sort of bring in my professional knowledge my expertise to this job, because we definitely have those those growing pains um, with, you know, sometimes staff disagrees with city council on what the best course of action is, and and how can we make those disagreements productive rather than, um, you know, instead of just you know creating tension or creating um, disagreeability, you know. Yeah, so that's something I'm still trying to figure out is is what is my role in 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 that conversation. So something that is really important to us at Strong Towns that you have probably encountered since you've been um, reading and you're part of the Facebook group and everything is really clearly and directly and honestly engaging with residents uh, in local decision making processes. How do you? get to do that in your role as a planner? Is there, is there room for like honest, true resident engagement in, uh, in your planning work? 
I hope so. <laughs> um, <laughs> I really subscribe to sort of the general contemporary theory of planning right now, uh, which is communicative planning, which is this idea that planning is fundamentally an act of communication, right? It's, it's about navigating all of these different power structures, these political structures, these social structures to communicate to different audiences. And I'm also really into this idea of planning as a relationship. I think planners are notoriously bad at being, at humanizing themselves. We get so caught up in jargon and technical terms and, um, you know, not really speaking to residents in ways that they can understand that we just sort of come off as these heartless robots. And I really am trying to change that in Sandy to create more of a culture of building relationships, a culture of communicating, because it's really important to me that we humanize this process. Uh, right now, we're embarking on um, a complete redo of our comprehensive plan. Our last comprehensive plan was written in 1997. Um, and so we're completely redoing our comprehensive plan. And it is fundamentally important to me that we provide as many opportunities as possible for real meaningful engagement and not like the lip service we're checking a box kind of engagement you know where we you know put a survey online or have an open house where people can look at some posters right that stuff doesn't work that stuff's boring that doesn't actually get at the heart of what public engagement ought to be and it's lazy right it's 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 dishonest it's paying lip service to the idea of serving members of a community. And so it's really important to me and I'm doing a lot of exploring and a lot of chewing on ideas of how can we really meaningfully engage the members of our community um, in a way that provides us with the insight that we need and the feedback that we need to construct a good comprehensive plan that serves not only you know, the residents who are gonna come through future growth, but the residents who already live here. Um, that is, I think, one of the fundamental pillars of, of what planning ought to be is real, meaningful, intentional public engagement. I love that. And I had not heard the term communicative planning, but um, mm. it seems really powerful. I like that. Yeah. On that note, I know that you have this communications effort uh, in your podcast called At Home in Oregon um, about housing and policy um, in Oregon. What got you inspired to start that and how has it been going? I started that podcast for kind of two main reasons. One is I found, I think housing policy in Oregon is fascinating. I think it's so interesting. And honestly, it was kind of selfish because I just wanted to learn as much as I could about housing policy in Oregon. And I figured out, you know, being able to approach all these experts with saying, oh, I'm interviewing for a podcast would mean that I could actually talk to them and, you know, learn more about, about housing policy in Oregon. And then also it's just kind of like, you know, I wanted to use it as a, as a way to, uh, to network, to get to know more people in that, in that sphere. And I actually recently did interview Chuck Marone, founder of Strong Sounds. We had a great conversation about, uh, about housing policy and specifically policy in Oregon. Uh, yeah. I'll make sure to link to that episode and to your show yeah. in general for everybody. Awesome. Are you, you, is it still ongoing? Um, are you still like actively publishing? 
Um, I'm working on potentially pivoting. So it's still going to be about planning topics. There's only so many people who do work on housing policy in Oregon. Um, <laughs> it's kind of undergoing some rebranding. So thinking back on your your time so far as a planner, and I know that like you're you're pretty young, you haven't been doing this for like decades and decades, but so far in your work, like what are you most proud of that you have accomplished or accomplished alongside others? I think what I've done that I'm most proud of is I've worked really hard to build a culture of relationships. I've worked really hard to be intentional about of recognizing that we're all on team Sandy, you know, even when we disagree about what the best interests of the city are, you know, we're all on team Sandy. I am convinced that if you want to create capacity, if you want to really collaborate, if you want to really have meaningful negotiations, you have to build the relationships first, right? We have to humanize each other. We have to see each other as like people and families. And we, we kind of talk about, you know, the yimby nimby debate. And I think that that is so reductive and so oversimplified. Um, you know, it's so easy in somebody in my, for somebody in my position to be like, oh, all these nimbies just don't want, you know, poor people living in their neighborhoods. They don't want apartments. They don't want, you know, any, any of this, any, any new housing, you know, they just, you know, they just, they're so entitled to all of this infrastructure and all of these amenities and they don't want to share, right. It's so easy. And, and I, I feel like that is so intellectually lazy. So what I've worked really hard to do is try to humanize everybody in these conversations and recognize like everybody has a fundamental interest in, in making Sandy a really good place to live. And so let's start there. You know, let's start from that foundation of everybody's on Team Sandy and everybody is a person. And and it's only when we come from from that kind of space that we can have meaningful conversations about policy and um, about the future of our city. So that's something that I've worked really hard to do um, is kind of create that human perspective, right, to humanize everybody in these conversations. Yeah, well said. That's something I think people in all sorts of professions could take to heart too, but especially um, those who are serving their communities or in government. Mm -hmm. So we have a lot of young or aspiring planners in our audience, new planners. What advice would you give for these people who want to advocate for a strong town's approach through planning? Um, And especially like what encouragement would you give when people might be getting bogged down in bureaucracy and how long government processes tend to take? I think the, the number one piece of advice that I would give is to not let yourself become cynical. I think this is true for a lot of professions, but obviously I can only speak to it in planning. But there is definitely this culture of cynicism in planning. And we treat cynicism as this indicator of experience and wisdom, you know, that we look at any kind of idealism as naivete. And we look at these young planners and these planning students who have these, you know, these who are hopeful and bright and idealistic. And we think, oh, how cute, how precious, you know, 
They just haven't been in the real world yet. Once they get in the real world, once they see how things actually operate, then they'll, they'll just become cynical like me. And I think cynicism is irresponsible as a planner. I think it's intellectually lazy and it's irresponsible um, because planning exists in at the intersection of idealism and realism, right? It's fundamentally idealistic because it assumes that there are multiple possible futures, that some of those futures are better than others, and that we can create a set of conditions to actualize one of the better futures, right? That's the definition of idealism, that we have some power over creating a better future. But it's also, it's an exercise in realism because it is true that we have these very complex, very entrenched bureaucratic systems, social systems, um, these institutions that we're working inside of that we have to be very cognizant of and sometimes can slow things down. And so I think the cynicism comes from not wanting to occupy that uncomfortable space between idealism and realism. And that if you want to do the real work that planning demands, that means sitting in that discomfort. Nothing frustrates me more in planning than when we equate cynicism with wisdom. I hate that so much because there's nothing wise about it. It's lazy. Um, It's, yeah, I hate that. So don't let yourself become cynical. You know, Um, I really like the saying, keep your feet on the ground and your head in the clouds. Envision an idealistic future, you know, work towards that while recognizing the reality of the world that we live in. We can do both and planning requires that we do both. Otherwise, we're giving up. Cynicism is giving up. Yeah, well said. Well, thank you so much, Shelly Dennison, for coming on the show um, and sharing your thoughts, your stories and your advice for everyone. Um, really appreciate the chance to talk to you. Of course. Yeah, thank you. I just want to throw a recommendation in here for listeners. As we mentioned in this conversation, the reason I initially heard about Shelly's story was because she posted in our Strong Towns Facebook group. This is a private group that is open for discussion. It's private just because we want to keep it, you know, avoid trolls and stuff. Um, But it's not actually, you don't have to be a Strong Towns member to participate or, you know, have any special qualifications. You just have to request to be added to the group. If you want to have more conversations and meet more people like Shelly, definitely recommend joining that Facebook group. Just search for, I think it's called Strong Towns Facebook Community. It'll pop up. Just search for Strong Towns on Facebook and you'll find it. As always, shout out to our Strong Towns members who are doing the good work in their cities and towns and who support that work across the country for other advocates like them through their membership at Strong Towns. So if you'd like to join those folks and support this movement, become a member at strongtowns.org membership. All right. Thanks so much for listening. We will see you back here next week for the next episode. Take care. Take care.